Having a view of reality that God reveals his truth through both nature and revelation is a formidable opponent against the transhumanist philosophy that says man can abolish his nature and exchange it for a different one. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. We're going to dive right into the discussion today because it's fairly long. But before we do that, just really quickly, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at solomonscorner.com, or don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Solomon's Corner, or follow me at Thomistic Dan on Twitter. And if you have any questions, you can send them to us on Twitter or at Solomon's Corner. Dot com. You can go on to the website and you can leave a comment on this podcast uh, or thoughts or questions or ridicule, whatever you're fancy. So don't forget to do that. Once again, solomonscorner.com. Click on the button podcast and there you'll find all of our podcasts there ready for your commenting and destructive vocal pleasures. We find ourselves in an odd age. All around us is the technological advances occurring rapidly. In every sphere, it seems there is a new technological plant of human innovation breaking ground in an arena that was previously believed impossible. Yet, many of us are unaware of these breakthroughs. We carry on in our daily lives, as if the world is changing and we are staying the same, when in actuality, technology is retaining its natural progression while our human progression is being detoured by it. Technology is supposed to innovate and develop in new and exciting ways that humans cannot. But were humans supposed to become symbiotic with technology? Are there boundaries that technology should not cross? Today, we will be discussing two great minds, one who is alive and active in the global discussion of technology and politics today, and another who has left us breadcrumbs of a world he foresaw in his fictional works titled The Space Trilogy. I am talking about Yuval Noah Harari. He's a historian and arguably a transhumanist, and also beloved philosopher C.S. Lewis. Both men have a trilogy of books dedicated to the subject of spiritual scientism. One author exposes its dangers, The other embraces these ideas as the next step in evolution, or if you're from across the pond, evolution. Today we focus primarily on Lewis's books in the Space Trilogy, two of them, Paralandra and That Hideous Strength. After discussing Lewis's prescient themes and parallels to today, we will do a small introduction to Yuval's Homo Deus, or, well, a little dramatic, but Homo Deus. Felt like I had to liven it up a little bit. In light of these two conflicting visions of the world, Lewis's and Yuval's, we will give an application for the Christian intellectual life. There are three books from the past that prophetically predicted our present conflicts. Most of us know the first two, which are 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, but few of us 
know of that hideous strength. Or if we do, we wouldn't throw it into the category of predictive or prophetic dystopian novels. If you are familiar with these titles, there is an even greater chance that you have read 1984 or Brave New World. But in my experience, like I said, few have read That Hideous Strength. I myself have only read 1984 and That Hideous Strength, but not Brave New World. And for a lot of us, 1984 and Brave New World have become ubiquitous in our understanding of what dystopia even looks like and the dangers that are there. All three of these books, though, do depict a dystopian world in which man's freedoms are trampled and control of the masses is achieved. In 1984, man is forced into submission with the iron rod of the government through dystopian surveillance techniques and psychological warfare. In Brave New World, it's the appeal to our pleasure through a drug called Soma, which I found on the internet because, like I said, I haven't read that one. But in C.S. Lewis's third installment of his space trilogy, That Hideous Strength, we find something unique that the other two do not provide. The spiritual and rational progression into a spiritual scientism that is often the underlying pins of a totalitarian regime. The motivation C.S. Lewis reveals, and Yuval explicitly argues for, is this, whether fallen or redeemed, man has a deep desire for the divine an eternal and blissful life. And recall that Yuval Noah Harari, his full name, is the transhumanist we will talk about later on in the podcast. Not only does Lewis accurately describe the spiritual motivations of man in that hideous strength, but he also describes a world not far from our own. What follows are several quotes from the book that highlight similarities to our own time. In Lewis's world, unlike 1984 or Brave New World, Control of man is not done through technology or fancy drugs. It's done through social engineering or propaganda or fake news. Man is controlled and, and fake news is propagated in partnership with a large global company known as NICE. It uses academics, specifically sociologists, to manipulate language via media. Here is a quote discussing the importance of language and its ability to manipulate our perceptions. Our protagonist, Mark Studdock, has just been hired on by NICE, and his, what you might call, onboarder, uh, or employee who's taking him through the ropes of what the work is going to be like, Feverstone, is talking. Feverstone says, You, Mark, are what we need. A trained sociologist with a radically realistic outlook not afraid of responsibility, also a sociologist who can write. We don't want you to write this up. We want you to write it down, to camouflage it. Only for the present, of course. Once the thing gets going, we shan't have to bother about the great heart of the British public. We'll make the great heart what we want it to be. But in the meantime, it does make a difference how things are put. For instance, if it were even whispered that the nice wanted powers to experiment on criminals, you'd have all the old women of both sexes up in arms and yapping about humanity. Call it re-education of the maladjusted, and you have them all slobbering with delight that the brutal era of retributive punishment has at last come to an end. Odd thing it is, the word experiment is unpopular, but not the word experimental. You mustn't experiment on children but offer the dear little kitties free, ed free education 
in an experimental school attached to the nice, and it's all correct. We can see from this that there is this manipulation of language, and all of us know about it on social media. But where it was really highlighted most recently was in the COVID lockdowns. From our own time, the terms emergency authorization and vaccine were used in the same way that Feverstone, talking to Studdick, Mark, the protagonist, talks about education of the maladjusted or experimental versus experiment. I bring this up not for political reasons, but Yuval is on the record stating the COVID era will usher in more government control. Klaus Schwab, leader of the World Economic Forum, echoes this in his work, The Great Reset. Don't call the Pfizer drugs experimental vaccines. This indicates that it's untested. Instead, call it emergency authorized. In substance, the drug is still experimental given that no long-term studies could have been done. But they used a fancy term called emergency authorized, meaning we are authorizing this drug despite its dangers. And yet, if you said anything of these dangers, you would be canceled or shut down. Or even if you questioned it, you would have warnings posted on your tweets or your Facebook posts or whatever it was that said you're in violation of these uh, rules for COVID. Additionally, it was called a vaccine, implying that because it conferred immunity, it was doing so via traditional virology and its methods. However, this also was a play on words. The vaccine was a gene therapy. And this was acknowledged later on in the pandemic by the CEO of Bayer. Ultimately, the, uh, the mRNA vaccines uh, are an example for that uh, cell and gene therapy. I always like to say, if we had surveyed two years ago uh, in the public, would you be willing to take a, a gene, th gene or cell therapy and inject it into your body? We would have probably had a 95% refusal rate. I think uh, this pandemic has also opened many people's eyes to, to innovation in the way that uh, was maybe not possible before. The Barry CEO admits in this clip that the pandemic opened up people's perceptions. But prior to the pandemic, they could not call the vaccine an mRNA gene therapy. Instead, they called it an mRNA vaccine. It's clear from our current events and the fictional events in Lewis's book that we are living in a very odd time. But brace yourself, it will only get weirder from here. Lewis capitalizes also on Christians who are against organized religion. They hold to a Jesus is Lord theology. And the character he uses for this is Mr. Strayick, a priest in the book. And while he has a minor role in the story, his discussion with the main character, Mark, parallels the theology of many Christians today. It's not theology I'm talking about, but the Lord Jesus. Theology is talk, eyewash, a smokescreen, a game for rich men. It wasn't in lecture rooms I found the Lord Jesus. The powers of science are an instrument, an irresistible instrument, as all of us in the nice know. And why are they an irresistible instrument? They are an irresistible instrument because they are an instrument in his hand, an instrument of judgment, as well as of healing. That is what I couldn't get any of the churches to see. They are blinded, blinded by their filthy rags of humanism. I knew that he was coming in power, and that is why I find myself joining with communists and materialists and anyone else who is really ready to expedite the coming. 
The feeblest of these people here has the tragic sense of life, the ruthlessness, the total commitment, the readiness to sacrifice all merely human values, which I could not find amid the nauseating cant of organized religions. Hope you enjoyed that little accent there. Just threw it in there. But the point of this passage is that you can hear the rejection of organized religion, and this is someone who maybe we would call activated, but you could easily swap him for someone who's apathetic, who's staying at home, not involved, and not furthering any sort of local Christian movement. There are many other parallels in the book that, as a whole, make the book feel very prophetic to our time, in the same way 1984 or Brave New World does. But specifically for Christians, and if you read Homo Deus, you will know what I'm talking about, but that's why I'm going to cover it later on in the podcast. Lewis, like other thinkers, has an uncanny ability of forecasting the future effects from immediate concepts and ideas. But a few more quick parallels. Nice goes through and purchases homes and villas on the campus grounds of of, uh, Bradbury. This parallels BlackRock, a major investment company who is doing similar things. Additionally, Mark, the protagonist, and his wife, Jane, are in a modern marriage where children are an afterthought to their careers. Jane is a modern feminist and portrays many of the attitudes of feminism that women today would admire. Protests and riots are used for political gain of trust in the nice, rather than the government. This parallels our woke companies like Big Tech that regularly excite protesters through their political messaging and products. Finally, although there are more parallels in the book than I have listed here, the idea that our emotions and spiritual perceptions are hormones, i.e. nothing more than something to manipulate and control, is a major theme in Lewis's work. This idea is all throughout both Lewis's hideous strength and is the major underlying theme in Yuval's philosophy of pleasure in Homo Deus. For a person following our current events, the books Perlandra and That Hideous Strength highlight not only the transhumanist philosophy as the demonic combination of theism, atheism, and technology, atheism as the materialist foundation, Theism, inasmuch as man aims to become divine, and technology as the means to transcend materialism and to become gods. They also get at the spiritual apathy of Christians, who believe that God has placed them in the time they are in solely to wait for his second coming, not to engage in the spiritual battle of ideas which wage daily in our politics and our communities. I was talking about communism, Marxism, materialism, nominalism and a rigid biblical fundamentalism, meaning that if it's not mentioned in the Bible explicitly, then the means we use for our happiness are permitted. But one last and important quote from C.S. Lewis before introducing you to Yuval Noah Harari, a contemporary thinker who emulates and embodies the ideas of Lewis's characters. The primary villain is not a particular individual or demon in that hideous strength, but rather the nice. NICE stands for National Institute of Coordinated Experiments and is an international organization similar to Google, Facebook, or Microsoft of our own day. These companies have a reach that is international, and our dependence on them is even greater than the dependence of the citizens on NICE in the book. In this particular quote, Mark recognizes that the company he has decided to work for, NICE, is involved in some dark stuff and he doesn't want any part in it. They have blackmailed him by framing him for a murder their own organization committed, 
The theme here is, once you arrive at Hotel Nice, you can stay, but you can never leave. Here's Mark thinking about how he could escape the nice. Quote, Even the vague idea of escaping to America, which in a simpler age comforted so many a fugitive, was denied him. Mark had already read in the papers the warm approval of the nice, and all its works, which came from the United States and from Russia. Its claws were embedded in every country. End quote. When you hear this quote, you should think of the humanitarian efforts that many tech companies invest in. Well, it's debatable how much abortion is considered a humanitarian effort, but nonetheless, it's safe to say that many global citizens look favorably on big temp companies and their ease they give their lives. For example, big temp companies start hospitals. They do sponsorships of work around the globe. And not necessarily Christian work, but they are everywhere, all over the world, in ways that no one, not even governments, have been able to attain. But the most concerning quote from C.S. Lewis that parallels not the mainstream thought of the culture, but the thought of the elite leaders of our day, is the goal of immortality to become gods. Quote, It means that if this technique is really successful, People have, for all practical purposes, discovered a way of making themselves immortal. It is the beginning of what is really a new species, a new nature replacing the old nature, who never die. They will call it the next step in evolution, and henceforward all the creatures that you and I call human are mere candidates for admission to the new species, or else its slaves, perhaps its food. Can you play that clip from Yuval Noah Harari? Again, I think that the biggest question, in, in maybe in economics and politics of the coming decades, will be what to do with all these useless people. The problem is more uh, boredom and how, what to do with them and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless. My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games as a solution for more. It's already happening uh, in, 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 under different titles, different headings. You see more and more people spending more and more time or uh, solving their inner problems with uh, drugs and computer games, both legal drugs and illegal drugs. If you look at Japan today, and Japan is maybe 20 years ahead of the world in, in everything, and you see all these new social phenomenon of, of people having relationships with virtual, uh, virtual spouses. And you have people who never leave the house and, and just live through computers. Today we would call this transhumanism, which is at its core a spiritualist atheism. An atheism in that it denies the existence of God or any divine being, but spiritualist in that it still believes that man's aim is to approximate divine power, knowledge, and omnipresence. And they mean this in its most literal sense. Now, this sounds weird, spiritualist atheism, and maybe it's because I made up the word. I'll give you that. Or because we traditionally think of atheists as hyper-rationalistic with no appetite for the mysterious. I would call this kind of atheism a classical atheism. Think J.L. Mackey, if you've read any of his stuff, or maybe Anthony Flew, 
They're more intellectual atheists. They don't really care. They're kind of live and let live. But then we had the neo-atheists. And these were people like Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett or uh, Sam Harris, although I don't know that he's really in the same camp, but they were more evangelistic in their atheism. They held to a similar metaphysical atheism in that no God existed. And this they shared with their classical theistic uh, brothers. But they did everything in their atheistic means to prevent there being a hint of the supernatural with the added aspect of trying to convert people to their atheism. The final iteration of atheism, though, appears to be this. A naive belief that science and technology lack any spiritual motives or effects. This atheism seeks to merge theistic aims with an atheistic metaphysic that sees the immaterial as having the same cause and effect relationship as the material world. Some people might call this emergent evolution. The idea that that if you bring, or emergentism, if you bring together the material aspects of the world in the right configuration, then things like immaterial consciousness will arise. And through that material relationship, spontaneously generating immaterial entities, we can now control immaterial aspects of the world. We see this depicted in Lewis's character, Weston, whose aim was originally space exploration in Perlandra. But then after getting some guidance, quote-unquote, from the demonic, his aim shifts to an atheistic spirituality that believes that man can obtain divinity through technology. Weston, the fictional character, is a depiction of Yuval Noah Harari's observations on humanity in Homo Deus. And I believe Lewis, had he not converted to Christianity, would also be Weston. The following quote is from the second book in the trilogy, Perlandra. Weston speaking says, quote, Your devil and your God, said Weston, are both pictures of the same force. Your heaven is a picture of the perfect spirituality ahead. Your hell, a picture of the urge or nisus, which is driving us on into it from behind. Hence the static, static peace of the one and the fire and darkness of the other. The next stage of emergent evolution beckoning us forward is God. The transcended stage behind us, ejecting us, is the devil. Your own religion, after all, says that the devils are fallen angels. Ransom, the main character of Perlandia, responds, quote, And you are saying precisely the opposite, as far as I can make out, Weston, that angels are devils who've risen in the world. Weston responds, It comes to the same thing. The thing we are reaching forward to is what you would call God, said Weston. End quote. After reading Lewis's Space Trilogy, I was amazed at the cultural predictions he was able to make. He published the book in the late 1940s, and the accuracy with which he depicts the ideology of contemporary thinkers in our time some 80 years later is both shocking and terrifying. This is most clearly seen in the ideas and writings of Yuval Noah Harari an influential thinker whose website at the time of this recording says, History began when humans invented gods and will end when humans become gods. So now if there was any doubt about whether or not these quotes may have been pulled from several years before, we know that Yuval is just as crazy as he was when he wrote the book Homo Deus. So who is Yuval Noah Harari? Well, in short, 
He believes that the next logical step in human evolution is to become immortal gods. From his book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, quote, Having secured unprecedented levels of prosperity, healthy and health and harmony, and given our past record and our current values, humanity's next targets are likely to be immortality, happiness, and wait for it, divinity, end quote. Now, I know what you're thinking. Daniel, this guy is a quack, a real lunatic. You know what I'm saying? I mean, where did you dig this guy up? The dark web? I understand the denial. After all, denial is a natural response to somebody as crazy as this. But after denial, we turn to apathy. After apathy, we find resolve. Resolve to join God and his truth or resolve to accept the devil's bargain of worshiping him and in exchange receiving the comfort this world has to offer. This may sound a bit dramatic, but what was the point of learning about the politics and sociology of evil regimes if we believed we would never have to face our own demonic manifestation of these ideas in our own time? In the words of one of Lewis's fictitious devils, quote, Like all you religious people, you talk and talk about these things all your life, and the moment you meet the reality, you get frightened. Needless to say, Dr. Harari is not some rando on the internet pumping blog articles. He is one of the most influential thinkers in the world. Here is a short excerpt from Yuval's bio on his website. Yuval was born in Israel in 1976. Harari received his PhD from the University of Oxford in 2002 and is currently a lecturer at the Department of History in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. In 2019, following the international success of his books, Yuval Noah Harari founded Sapienship with his husband and original agent, Itzik Yahav. Sapienship is a social impact company with projects in the fields of entertainment and education, whose main goal is to focus the public conversation on the most important global challenges facing the world today. Yuval Noah Harari gave keynote speeches on the future of humanity in Davos 2020 and 2018 on the World Economic Forum's main Congress Hall stage. Now, I'm going to read you a big list of names because the claims that Yuval makes outside of listing these names, would seem very conspiratorial and very grandiose and very absurd to even be talking about. So, just to list these. He regularly discusses global issues with heads of state and has had public conversations with Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, and Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mistakis. Harari has also met with French President Emmanuel Macron, German Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, Argentine President Mauricio Macri, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, and Shanghai's Mayor Ying Yang. In 2019, Harari sat down for a filmed discussion on technology and the future of society with Facebook's CEO Mark Zuckerberg, and in 2018, he presented the first-ever TED Talk delivered by a digital avatar. Professor Yuval Noah Harari is a historian, philosopher, and the best-selling author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and Sapiens, A Graphic History. His influence is large. His books have sold over 40 million copies in 65 languages, and he is considered one of the world's most influential public intellectuals today. Now, After you've gotten done laughing at my 
attempts at pronouncing last names from people in countries that I don't live in, understand that the point of reading that lengthy bio was to lay the foundation that this ideology, this idea of man becoming God is no longer being held by a couple of nerds in the science departments at some universities. It is held by the most influential people in the world, and Yuval makes that claim, not me. And Yuval is the one who is meeting with all of these world leaders and selling books at the millions to discuss what it means to become a god. So, needless to say, the guy has some pull with some pretty powerful people and some very big reach with his ideas. But at this point, I need to say something about conspiracy theories. There are many who believe that Yuval Harari is part of a global cabal to destroy half the world, and that his speeches and his writings are demonstrations of this claim. However, this misunderstands his position. While Yuval rolls in what we might say are questionable circles, it's important to know that his argument is based on history and man's habits of seeking the least amount of pain and the longest life he can. Man will continue to pursue pleasure and longevity, historically speaking, is Dr. Harari's argument. In short, when you read Yuval, think of the quote from Jeff Goldblum's character about the Jurassic Park. You were so concerned with whether you could do it, you never stopped to ask if you should. Yuval is merely making the same observation, that man tends to seek progress at any cost, and there is no exception to this habit today. That said, reading Dr. Harari thus far, he does seem to see himself as someone who has observed a train with limited space available and certainly seems to be aligning himself with persons that will increase his chances that he is not left behind on the train ride to transhumanist divinity. Before we go further, just a recap of Homo Deus, translated Man-God, the title of Dr. Yuval Harari's book. Dr. Harari holds a doctorate from Oxford University and lectures at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and is an advisor to the World Economic Forum. Now, Compare that to C.S. Lewis, who brought us into the beginning of this podcast. Lewis was also Oxford-educated and a lecturer at Cambridge. Here are two great men who appear to have walked the same road. Both walked the road of a prestigious Oxford education. Both dabbled in spiritualist and meditative techniques. But here they diverge. Lewis embraced theism. Harari has rejected it. Lewis saw the dangers of materialism and recognized that the concrete philosophical walls it had built for itself would not satisfy the soul. Man needs joy, and if God will not give it to him, then man must transcend his materialist cage by any means necessary. The organic becomes a cage inhibiting man's potential to become a god himself. That said, let's proceed to analyze more in depth Harari's text. And as we do this, I want you to have in the back of your mind Matthew 10.28, which says, Fear the one who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. At the opening page of Homo Deus is a picture labeled In Vitro Fertilization, Mastering Creation. It is interesting that this, for Yuval, is the image he decides to lead his book with. The implication is obviously that of playing God. What is amazing in reading Yuval is that many mainstream Christian denominations and pastors lack the training in essentialist philosophy to make the arguments that Yuval is not only in error, but that his position is morally wrong. Certainly, anything that sets itself up as an idol against God is immoral. Mainstream fundamentalist Christianity, I'm not talking about Joel Osteen types, 
will have no problem arguing against this point of claiming divine status through technology. However, many of these orthodox denominations, quote-unquote, lack the philosophical convictions necessary to combat transhumanist practices. As a result, they will most likely see the controversial technologies that Yuval describes as a meat-sacrificed, quote-unquote, to idols discussion, where the morality of the decision is ambiguous and highly subjective. Regardless, the transhumanist train has momentum, which always begins with a shared Christian value to heal. And this inevitably becomes upgrade. Yuval accurately points out this aspect in the way that we move from healing to enhancement. Yuval's example, wait for it, is Viagra. Quote, Viagra began as a treatment for blood pressure problems, which is something I did not know. To the surprise and delight of Pfizer, it transpired that Viagra can also overcome impotence. It enabled millions of men to regain normal sexual abilities. But soon enough, men who had no impotence problems in the first place began using the small pill to surpass the norm and acquire sexual powers they never had before. Healing is the initial justification for every upgrade. Find some professors experimenting in genetic engineering or brain-computer interfaces and ask them why they are engaged in such research. In all likelihood, they would reply that they are doing it to cure disease. Maybe, but it will surely not end there. When we successfully connect brains to computers, will we use this technology only to cure schizophrenia? If anybody really believes this, then they may know a great deal about brains and computers, but far less about the human psyche and human society. Once you achieve a momentous breakthrough, you cannot restrict its use to healing and completely forbid using it for upgrading. End quote. And that is a series of quotes on pages 60 and 63 that I've brought together to, for conciseness. What Yuval demonstrates in these early pages is that man is at an apex in his development. He desires pleasure and desires to cure death. The most frightening aspect is that much of these projects are not conjectured. They are already happening. You might be saying the Viagra argument makes sense, but there isn't anything else going on out there in the world. Well, buckle up, buttercup. It's about to get wild. In 2013, Time Magazine ran an article headlined, Can Google Solve Death? This was the cover story for that, that edition. That same year, another article went out from CNN. Its headline read, how Google's Calico aims to fight aging and solve death, end quote. Yuval writes and provides in-depth citations on this subject. Quote, in 2012, Ray Kurzweil, winner of the 1999 U.S. National Medal of Technology and Innovation, was appointed a director of engineering at Google, and a year later launched a subcompany called Calico, whose stated mission is to solve death. In 2009, Google appointed another immortality true believer, Bill Maris, to preside over the Google Ventures Investment Fund. In January 2015, Maris said, If you ask me today, is it possible to live to be 500? The answer is yes. Maris backs up his brave words with a lot of hard cash. Google Ventures is investing 36% of its $2 billion portfolio in life sciences startups, including several ambitious life-extending projects. End quote. Now, take that in for a minute. 
whether or not you think that this is possible, prior to this time, there wasn't this amount of capital to invest in even trying to do it. And this is one of the things Yuval points out later on in the book, is that whether you like it or not, people are actually trying to do this, and they are actively doing biological experiments and research on trying to solve death. But what would a world like this look like for religious persons if death were actually solved? Yuval has an answer for that too. And it's a little chilling. Just trying to imagine Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism in a world without death, which is also a world without heaven, hell, or reincarnation. We don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death. A couple of geeks in a lab can do it. If traditionally death was the specialty of priests and theologians, now the engineers are taking over. End quote. The vision of the future that Yuval presents does not have room for old theistic religions like you and I would adhere to. In one video, Yuval states that the new religions are in Silicon Valley. This appears to mimic the spiritualism found in that hideous strength. After all, Harari dedicates his book to a Hindu spiritualist who has also spoken on the stage at the World Economic Forum. These similarities are not meant to convey conspiracy, but rather to validate that Lewis's books in the Space Trilogy have a relevance to our discussion today at the farthest levels of global government and technology. The materialist spirituality that permeates his books is currently permeating our world today. That is, that permeates C.S. Lewis's books is permeating our world today and at speeds that no one can really comprehend, including Yuval. Yuval writes, quote, Even if gods don't walk our streets by 2100, and side note, there are some who think that, quote-unquote, gods could be walking our streets by 2050, the attempt to upgrade Homo sapiens is likely to change the world beyond recognition in this century. Scientific research and technological developments are moving at a far faster rate than most of us can grasp. Nobody can absorb all the latest discoveries. Nobody can predict how the global economy will look in 10 years, and nobody has a clue where we are heading in such a rush. Since no one understands the system anymore, no one can stop it. Now, you might be saying, well, of course they want to say this stuff so that they can get their money and their capital and just have research and science and all this kind of stuff. And if somebody wants to adopt the position that somebody would lie about their motives in order to attain tons and tons of money to do pseudo-research on solving the problem of death, it needs to be understood that that is just as conspiratorial as someone who says that these research projects are designed for destroying 75% of the population. Just because it's conspiratorial doesn't mean it's false, but at the end of the day, conspiracy theory is one of the things that is lobbed in order to discredit a position and oftentimes the objections to a conspiracy theory are something along the lines of an, a, a, a competing conspiracy theory that the person thinks is actually fact. It's just a classic calling the kettle black. So why does all this matter? This desire for big tech companies and elites of the world striving for divinity, especially for the Christian intellectual life? It is because the culture we create, whether for good or for ill, has a philosophical and theological foundation. Many Christians and religious thinkers have forgotten this. They have, in ejecting philosophy as a discipline or tool to study God's natural order as it exists, 
created a vacuum. Vacuums by nature desire to be filled. The rejection of essentialist philosophy in the Christian faith has rendered them vulnerable to the predations of transhumanist philosophy. The underlying philosophy they have replaced it with is very similar to Yuval's underlying philosophy. Mainly, that while a human nature may exist, its barriers are meant to be broken, not adhered to. In some cases, Christians may implicitly reject the idea of a human nature altogether. Here are a few examples that Yuval of technology that Yuval uses to depict progress of transhumanism. These examples and practices have been unreflectively adopted by Christians without consideration of the spiritual-physical implications. Number one, in vitro fertilization. Despite it taking lives of unborn children, i.e. zygotes, that are created in the process, and the parents do have to decide what they will do with them, I have met many Orthodox and fundamentalist Christians who believe that this is permissible in the Christian faith. It is not. This does not mean that the children produced from this practice are not human. What it means is that in the same way knowledge was not something God wanted to withhold from Adam and Eve, they nevertheless chose to obtain it by their own means rather than the means that God had ordained and provided. Birth control is another example Yuval gives as the natural progress towards one of man's natural desires, pleasure. Quote, The newly invented contraceptive pill made sex freer than ever. End quote. Now, I'm not saying that all forms of birth control are off limits, but most Christians, including the most fundamentalist among us, have adopted methods unreflectively and only in pursuit of preventing birth and with no regard for the spiritual implications of their birth control choice. Despite the fact that many of the catechisms that denominations have explicitly denounce practices that would be abortive, and it's in the catechisms, it's in the Anglican Catechism, it's part of the Catholic Church, and those out there who would say, you knit me in my mother's womb, all of these groups have decided that their doctor is the only person they will consult with in their medical decisions, not their pastor or priest. The third one, this one is a little bit crazy, so bear with me, is biological and psychic enhancement. Given Christianity's complacent attitude towards development in these previous two areas, birth control and in vitro fertilization, as well as others, the next logical progress will be in the areas of biological and psychological enhancement. Indeed, these examples are not fictitious. They are actively being developed and in some cases are already in the market. Quote from Huval, The upgrading of humans into gods may follow any of three paths. Biological engineering, cyborg engineering, and the engineering of non-organic beings. Cyborg engineering will go a step further, merging the organic body and the non-organic devices, such as bionic hands. Artificial eyes or millions of nanorobots that will navigate our bloodstream, diagnose problems, and repair damage. A cyborg could exist in numerous places at the same time. If you want to turn on the light in the kitchen, you just wear the helmet. Imagine some programmed mental sign. Imagine your right hand moving, and the switch turns on. You can buy these helmets online for a mere $400. However, once technology enables us to re-engineer humans' minds, Homo sapiens will disappear. Human history will come to an end, and a completely new kind of process will begin, which people like you and me cannot comprehend. And those who know C.S. Lewis know that what Yuval is describing here as progress is what C.S. Lewis would have called the abolition of man. 
So now we come to the close. You will not find a verse in the Bible that defines man, not in any biological or materialist term. And I say this because the obvious question now is, so what's the point? Why should we care? What role does it even have in impacting the Christian life, especially if this is a speeding train that can't be stopped? Man is created in God's image, but theologians and philosophers debate this idea as to what it is. Furthermore, the soul is not clearly defined in the Bible either. For a book on the complexity of such things, check out Body, Soul, and Life Everlasting by John W. Cooper to get a taste of how opaque the scriptures are to the lay reader looking for a definitive and encyclopedic definition of man in the Bible. The truth is there, but it's not self-evident or defined explicitly, nor does it need to be because God is the author of both the Bible and nature. Our experience with reality is intelligible, and thus the scripture is intelligible. It describes that which is seen and that which is unseen. But for many Christians, this is not the case because they have inherently adopted an anti-realist perspective, one that says, I can't trust my senses. For a crude but simplistic definition of a realist view, which would counter the anti-realist view, look no further than Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? In this documentary, he visits a man and says, how do you know you're a man? To which the crotchety old man responds, I guess because I have a dick. Although crude, this is a demonstration that man can know some aspects of reality without a Bible verse to affirm it. The scripture obviously reveals that man is more than his genitalia, but having experiences with human beings is required to interpret the Bible correctly. Having a view of reality that God reveals his truth through both nature and revelation is a formidable opponent against the transhumanist philosophy that says man can abolish his nature and exchange it for a different one. Furthermore, the reason why it is formidable is because Christians need to understand that the philosophies that are out there in the world will fill the vacuum of their lack of philosophy and thus affect their interpretation of the text. So when you say start with the text, the assumption is, is that starting with the text is a person who has no philosophical canvas on which any philosophical paint has been thrown. But that's impossible because like all of us, prior to ever coming to the text, you always have imbibed some sort of philosophical ideas that affect your interpretation of the Bible. This is why a lot of people are throwing objections to Christians saying, well, show me in the Bible where I can't become a woman if I want to, because there's no verse that says you can't. It's implied based on an essentialist view of what man is. There are those who may be discouraged hearing the way that things are going, or that books and ideas like Yuval's are gaining so much traction among the most powerful and elite among us. He also is planning a preteen series, by the way. But don't fret. We have the true God on our side. He has placed us here for this time. It is our job to decide whose side we are on. In Lewis's second book, Perlandra, the main character, Ransom, is complaining to God about why God won't stop the demon-possessed villain. How could God allow such an evil to move about freely? Suddenly, Ransom recognizes that God has sent him, weak though he may be, to fight this demonic force, and though doing it may kill him, it is his divine duty to stand between the evil and the good. Similarly, in that hideous strength, a new main character, Mark Studdock, emerges and is torn between joining the rebels and joining the nice. He is confronted by a Christian character, Dr. Dimble, 
who offer Stedek an opportunity to leave nice and join the true human family. Quote, There is no time, said Dimble, and there is really nothing to think about. I am offering you a way back into the human family, but you must come at once. Mark responds, It's a question affecting my whole future career. Your career, said Dimble? It's a question of damnation, or a last chance. But you must come at once. I can offer you no security. Do you understand? There is no security for you anyhow, for anyone now. The battle has started. I'm offering you a place on the right side. I don't know which will win. We, of course, know who will win in the war. But what will the fallout be between those striving for divinity and those seeking to submit to it? This is unclear. So what is one to do? Firstly, you must pick a side. Who or what you are going to work for? When it comes to the conclusion of that hideous strength, The idol the protagonist has is not some desire for divinity, nor a desire for some hideous sin. Instead, it is the desire to be liked, the desire to talk big at parties about the company he works for, his career accomplishments and awards. In the end, we must understand that where we decide to grow our careers may say more about who we are as Christians than where we go to church. Finally, and most importantly, What is clear from the scripture is that we are to seek God while he can be found. What kind of fallout will this attempt at becoming God by the most powerful and elite technocrats be? We live in a time of unprecedented knowledge, and we should utilize this time to seek God while he can be found. What that means for those gifted in the intellectual and spiritual gifts, administration, teaching, writing, art, reflection, etc., is to continue growing your mind and your craft to the glory of God. Lewis could not have known that his books would be guideposts for generation after generation, but thank God he wrote his books. We too should write books and sculpt our minds, doing so with the goal not of obtaining divinity, but of pleasing our divine Father in heaven. We then take this knowledge and teach it to our children and those we are privileged to minister to, knowing that even in darkness and shackles there is freedom and truth. I know I talk a big game, And whether I or you are able to live up to the demands is not the purpose of this episode. Rather, it is to inspire us to continue to discern our times and minister accordingly in the wisdom of serpents and in the gentleness of doves. Seek God while he can be found, practice virtue, and develop a habit of prayer in your pursuits of goodness, beauty, and truth. In doing this, I believe that God will honor our attempts and that should we fail, we will be reminded of his redemptive power to restore us, despite our weakness. And one thing is definitely clear from reading Yuval and Lewis. Apathy is not an option. Thanks for listening. I'm Daniel Roberts. And remember, keep thinking.